This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Midterm elections have their patterns. The party not in the White House tends to gain seats. Turnout is usually down, at least compared to a presidential election, and voters use it to send a message to those in power. But the political calculus we use sometimes needs a little adjusting. As we gear up for the 2022 midterm elections, there are some extraordinary factors that have the potential to sway things. For one, it's a redistricting cycle. That's usually chaotic enough. This one is extra chaotic because the COVID-19 pandemic delayed the census and its reapportionment and state's ability to draw congressional lines. Another extraordinary situation, a former president who lost his bid for re-election, exerting the kind of influence we're seeing Donald Trump attempt in key races. Nathan Gonzalez, elections analyst for CQ Roll Call and the publisher of Inside Elections, is here to discuss. Nathan, welcome to Political Theater. Thank you for having me. It's it's uh, always good. I know that the last time didn't go terribly if you keep asking me back. It's it's that and well, you know, I mean your I mean your agent has been very difficult to deal with sometimes, but he did cut us a break on the last few. I'm just kidding. You don't have an agent. <laughs> I'll I'll give my I'll I'll let my mom to ease up on you. Okay. Um, so let's let's start with uh, redistricting. I mean, you, you've been writing about some of the some of what you're seeing, some of the trends that you're seeing as we are um, getting into sort of high gear for the midterm cycle um, in in 2022. But let's let's start with one that is is the the one that we can say the least about because we know the least about, which is redistricting. Um, as we mentioned, you know that the 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 2014 the 2018 midterm elections didn't have to um, sort of account for for different um, you know diff- people running in different seats all all across the country states losing seats states, states gaining seats uh, this is uh, it, this is not the case this is uh, this this year uh, reapportionment scrambles the map um, you know and but we don't even know what those lines are going to be because of the uh, the pandemic is this kind of, uh, this situation is, it's, it's extraordinary even by redistricting standards because people still don't even know where they're going to be running uh, for those people who are interested, right? In the House. Right. I mean, this is all taking place uh, with the with the umbrella that Republicans only need to gain five seats to get control. I mean, this is extraordinarily uh, close, closely divided Congress. So literally every seat matters. And that is complicating what is normally a crazy uh, redistricting cycle because it usually it happens every 10 years. It's long enough to forget sort of the chaos that ensues both in how the lines are drawn and the legal, um, the, the legal fights that, that go on before we get to finalize lines. Uh, just to put in real terms, the, the delay that we're seeing that I went back and looked in October of 2011. So 10 years ago, this fall, but 10 years ago, and more than half of the congressional districts had been finalized by October of 2011, ahead of the 2012 uh, midterm, uh, 2012 election. And by the time we get to October of this year, uh, we're going to have a fraction of that. 
because the Census Bureau is supposed to, it's going to be August or September before the Census Bureau releases the granular data that the states are required to use to draw the lines. And so not only do the states have to get that data, um, draw the lines, it survive court challenges inevitably from the party that feels like the lines are not fair. And then, you know, and then they're finalized and we get to filing deadlines and primaries. And so all of the, the lack of maps has pushed back on potential retirements from members who are put in a politically precarious situation. Um, it, it, it doesn't help us. We don't know the micro fight for the House in terms of which districts. And so it's, um, it's, it's, gonna, it's delayed and the chaos is only delayed uh, the cycle. But it's important because of the narrow majority. And and you can see this too, some sort of the the frustration uh, among political operatives because you know say somebody who's a uh, a, a Democratic target, uh, Mike Garcia in California. I mean, they're you know like th- they have an interest in sort of ginning up uh, opposition research and and trying to recruit a good candidate to run against him and so forth. And and yet they don't know what <laughs> kind of district he's going to be running in. So he could be running in a much safer Republican district, which would mean that a lot of the groundwork that they're doing, you know, for to target him uh, is is uh, pointless. Uh, or it could be a much more Democratic district in which it's also a waste of time because then they didn't need to because they can just sort of turn out their own people. Uh, and that's just one, uh, one, one uh, you know, potential race. His, his name sort of popped into my head just because he was, you know, he, he turned over, uh, a, a, he flipped the Democratic seat in, in 2020. And he would normally be somebody like they're going after him, but we don't even know what his district's going to look like. And some candidates are probably waiting on the sidelines. We don't know who they are because they want to see the map. Other candidates are just jumping in. Um, for example, uh, two candidates who lost in 2020, two Republicans that come to mind, Wesley Hunt in the Houston area who lost to, to Lizzie Fletcher, um, he's running again. I think the press release said, you know, in the Houston area. <laughs> so he's kind of <laughs> leaving it, leaving it, uh, leaving his options open. Uh, I know Tyler Kistner, a Republican who lost to Angie Craig in the uh, in the Twin Cities suburbs. Um, he, he's running again. That district could change, although you know, folks on the ground think it, it might not. That there wasn't, there weren't dramatic population shifts in the in the area that would require it to change a lot. But there's there's uncertainty, and and there are a couple of states, as you know, Jason, that we've talked about before. Some states that have are new to the commission process, which are uh, wild cards because we don't they're they're void of the political influence, which can be good, but also that is usually void of the sources to know what's going on. And so, Michigan, uh, Colorado are two key states where are that are new to the commission process. Um, that we don't know what's going to happen. Some incumbents might end up being at risk that normally uh, w- normally would not be. And and even in in areas like a, in a state like Montana, which is gaining a seat, um, you know, there th- that's usually good news that opens up more opportunities for people who want to run for public office. Um, we've got people jumping into the race, and we have the the former president Donald Trump endorsing one of those candidates, even though it's not clear. Where uh, where the Ryan Zinke, who used to hold the at-large seat in Montana and then became Trump's interior secretary, he said he's going to run again. Uh, but it, the, we don't know where he's going to run, we, whether it will be the first or the second district uh, and how they will divide the votes. Montana doesn't, uh, you can't really cut it you know, in half so much because the population is, for the most part, skewed towards the western part of the state. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting, but, you know, it, it hasn't stopped them from, you know, sort of 
as you said, jumping in and also not knowing where what which voters they have to court. <laughs> yeah, in Montana, the thinking is that there's when there are going to be two districts. One, uh, the thinking is that one is going to be a Republican leaning district, and one is going to be competitive. It'll be a Democratic opportunity. Um, there are a number of Democrats as a state legislator who jumped in, and also one a Democrat who just jumped in recently, uh, a former Olympic rower named Monica Trinnell, who you can read about. She's one of a couple of former Olympians who are running for Congress. You can read that at rollcall.com. Uh, yes, so, I, th- I believe you are the author of that. I heard too. about it. I this, heard will about be, it. this will be in the show notes, by the way, everybody. We're <laughs> listening. <laughs> um, click three times on that story, please. Uh, <laughs> what and And so... I think the thinking is for some candidates, they just can't afford to wait, right? You just, the you got to get in, you got to get your operation going, your fundraising going. And uh, particularly if you're a first time candidate. Um, And so, so to jump in, do what you can. If you end up unable to, uh, with nowhere to run, then you, you, you shutter it and live for another day. And speaking of Trump uh, endorsing in, in Montana, um, the, the former president has uh, weighed in on several uh, races, particularly Senate races, uh, but the, the, the Zinke one is obviously a House race. Um, but let's, I mean, on a, on a broad level, this is somewhat impre- unprecedented, uh, right? That a, a former president, particularly one who, who lost a re- re-election bid, would be so involved in trying to pick uh, favored candidates on the Republican side. I mean, like, I can't think of any precedent for this uh, in, in former presidents. Can you? It's a little different than building homes with Habitat for Humanity or uh, painting veterans from a ranch in Crawford, Texas. Hypothetically, it's different than, than those two <laughs> post-presidential activities. But yeah, this is, you know, he, he is maintaining his influence over the Republican Party. His endorsement is the most sought after endorsement in key Republican primaries. And we are seeing where his, President Trump's priorities are not necessarily aligned with Republicans who want to win back the House and the Senate. And uh, so I, just a quick sort of recap. I mean, like the the fortunes that the Republican Party has had with with Donald Trump. 2016, uh, he he won uh, the, the presidency and Republicans swept. They, they kept the, the House and the Senate. They were in the majority uh, before 2016 and they maintained their majority. So it was a Republican sweep in 2016 with him at the top of the ticket. In 2018, uh, the the Democrats won the House. Uh, they... they um, you know that that's sort of one of those more typical um, midterm dynamics that we see that people register their disapproval with the occupant of the White House by sending the opposition party uh, to a a, a, a a sort of gleeful election night. Uh, the Republicans did maintain their majority in in the Senate, though, and then in 2020 we had a Democratic sweep. Uh, Joe Biden won the the White House, um, and and Democrats, you know, they retained, they lost seats in the House, uh, and and which you know accounts for their very slim majority, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast. Uh, and then they unexpectedly got a fifty fifty split uh, in the Senate, but because they won the presidency, that gave them gave them the majority. So, what's the what is the what's the attraction here for Republicans if they've steadily lost ground with Trump uh, for for his endorsement? Well. The first step is we have to remember these are often in the context of the primary and, and the president, President Trump is extraordinarily popular with Republican primary voters. And so that's why he is sought after in the primary. 
in a general election contest, I think Republicans have a much rosier view of what you just laid out. Um, they they actually see that President Trump, in their mind, is building a a populist coalition that is reaching out to minority voters uh, in a, in a way that Republican nominees haven't in recent history, and uh, they focus on the twelve seat gain in the House that went against expectations, pre election expectations. So they tend to focus on those things, and uh, because of that, there is a disincentive to change course, a disincentive to move away from the president. And that's, I, th- I think that's what's guiding a lot of uh, kind of the Republican thinking. And they know the history of the midterms. You know, they know that historically uh, the president's party uh, loses an average of 30 seats in midterm elections going back for a century and they need five. <laughs> this is not, this is not big math that we're, you don't have to do common core on this one uh, to get uh, to get to there. And so Republicans know that. So there's just a, I think a disincentive to shake up the, the whole party apparatus. Let's talk about the Senate because the Senate, I mean, it's, it's uh, um, as, as we mentioned, you know, at 50, 50 and with Kamala Harris, the vice president's tie breaking vote, they, the, the Democrats have the the barest majority that you can have. Uh, so, I mean, you, you recently did a, a video where you talked about the the battleground uh, and and how you know there are more Republican seats open uh, this uh, this time around than Democratic seats. So you so Democrats just on that level they don't have to defend as many seats; they can go on offense. Uh, but really, it comes down to about eight key states, uh, four that are held by Republicans currently and four that are held by Democrats. Uh, but most of them are in states that Biden won. Um, and if you look at the, I mean, like that's really where so much of this money and attention is going to go to states like Georgia and Arizona and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio, um, and, and North Carolina and Florida. Uh, and, but the, where Trump is starting to weigh in, um, is, I mean, where he has weighed in so far are not necessarily the most competitive states with the exception of North Carolina. We'll get to that. But he's weighed in on Alabama on behalf, on behalf of Mo Brooks. Um, and you're, one of the things that you've written uh, is, is that, you know, Brooks would have to be seen as, a, as sort of a, a favorite uh, in, in this race. Uh, you know, like, let's talk about that race. Yeah, so uh, Mo Brooks, um, you know, the sitting congressman with the president's endorsement, I think is, is the front runner, but then now there are three Republican women running against him. Uh, Katie Boyd Britt, who is the former chief of staff to uh, retiring Senator uh, Richard Shelby. Uh, Linda Blanchard, a former ambassador in the Trump administration, formerly uh, appointed by President Trump. And, and then now Jessica Taylor, um, not related to my uh, my friend Jessica Taylor at the Cook Political Report, uh, but a former congressional candidate. Actually, she helped form the conservative squad in the 2020 elections and a number of the other conservative squad members, uh, like uh, I think actually all three of the others, Beth Van Dyne, Nancy Mace, and, um, and the woman, uh, Michelle Fishbach in Minnesota, I think all, all won and she ended up uh, not even winning the primary. But anyway, she's running in, in the Senate race as well. So yeah, it, it's still early, but uh, I think he's the front runner. And Alabama is going to remain in Republican hands uh, this is not. I mean, Doug Jones was was soundly defeated uh, in the last election. I don't. I don't see that there's really a uh, a chance for for Republicans, you know, losing this one. 
Right. And then he's also weighed in on uh, the Senate race in Alaska, where Lisa Murkowski is up, a Republican. She voted to um, to convict him uh, of, of uh, inciting an insurrection in a second impeachment trial that earned uh, earned his ire, uh, and, and he has said that he's going to campaign against her. But he, in, in this situation— the, a lot, there are some dynamics just that are very specific to Alaska that makes this perhaps you know like almost out of his control uh, to to affect the race, right? I mean, this is it's a it's it's not a strictly partisan primary, for instance, right? And the, Alaska just changed the rule, changed their uh, the process uh, in the last election. Now it's a combination of a ranked choice top four primary, and so the bottom line is that. Uh, Lisa Murkowski, Senator Murkowski, does not have to rely on Republican voters who like President Trump to to win renomination and to ultimately get reelected. I do feel like maybe the the narrative about the race has gotten a little bit out of hand, meaning that this new process that Murkowski is going to win and, and it's a done deal. And I feel like it's it's gotten out of uh, out of control and that it's still complicated. I mean, she Senator Murkowski still needs a large number of Democrats and unaffiliated voters to to rank her high enough to keep her moving through the process and, and ultimately winning, which is not a guarantee. Um, it's, it's just not a guarantee. So I'm, I'm concerned a little bit I'm, uh, that uh, maybe some people are taking it for granted because the process is untraditional. And Lisa Murkowski has lost in a primary before and won re-election as a writing candidate. Um, but uh, this is a complicated race. And I was also doubtful that President Trump uh, was really going to spend a lot of time on the ground in a race that's 4,000 miles away from Mar-a-Lago, I believe. Um, <laughs> but I've been told, I mean, President Trump hates Lisa Murkowski. And when he gets, he, when he gets focused on something, you know, whether you love him or hate him, when he's focused on something, um, you know, he can be relentless. And, and I think he's, he is focused on Alaska and trying to defeat Senator Murkowski. And I mean, I think this is what's so interesting too about some of these midterm dynamics is that Trump is is obviously you know he has an effect on on Republican primary voters, but in this case, I mean the the Republicans are in the minority. Uh, Lisa Murkowski is you know a, a, a fairly in 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 most cases considered like a safe you know incumbent. Like if you did, if if you like sort of leave if Republicans were to leave that seat alone. Um, and yet there are other, they, they still need to flip uh, at least one seat. And I mean, again, life is in a series of opportunity costs, right? I mean, like if, there, if, the, if, the, if there's a bunch of money and time that's going into uh, trying to target somebody like Murkowski, who's a Republican, in a, what should normally be a safe race, that means that that money isn't being spent to shore up, say, Ron Johnson, a Republican in Wisconsin, who's been you know, one of the president's staunchest allies. I, I think what we're seeing in, in Senate races, I mean, money appears to almost literally grow in trees. <laughs> like, money is just everywhere we're seeing in these second quarter fundraising numbers that are, that are starting to come out. The, the fundraise donors appear to be ready and willing to to put in their money. What I think is fundamentally at hand with President Trump and Republicans in the Senate is that his priorities are, it is about loyalty. It is about, in his mind, it's about whether someone is for him and has said nice things about him or is against him and has done something against him. And that is what he's got. And sometimes those two things don't align with Republicans in the Senate. Let's give two specific examples. 
President Trump hates Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. Um, he believes that the governor did not go far enough in delivering the president, delivering Arizona's electoral votes for him and fighting. And the president hates him. The president keeps putting out press releases saying, you know, how, how terrible of a person Ducey is and kind of torpedoing Ducey's chances in a Republican primary for the Senate in a key Senate race against Democratic Senator Mark Kelly when Ducey's a former two-term governor and probably Republicans' best potential candidate in a key race but because the president has different priorities, then, um, then that, that's complicating things. Let's go to Georgia. Another key race, a pickup opportunity for Republicans with Senator Raphael Warnock, who was just elected on January the 5th in that, in that runoff. Um, president Trump wants Herschel Walker to run. Uh, Herschel Walker is the former Heisman Trophy winning uh, running back for the Georgia Bulldogs. He also lives in Texas and he's a former star of the Dallas Cowboys. Um, and that is complicating the race because I'm not convinced that Herschel Walker is Republicans' best chances. There are still, Biden won Georgia, but there's still lots of Republicans who could run in Georgia and be credible candidates. But again, Walker, Texas resident, has been very uh, upfront about his mental health struggles or issues over the years. Um, there are public stories about Herschel Walker, including um, an incident with his now ex wife where he held a gun to her head. In an I mean, these are not things. Um, I want to be careful. I'm not making light of mental health issues. I'm saying in the context of a campaign, getting an out-of-state resident with some of this history is may not be Republicans' best opportunity in a key race. And yet they can't, they feel like they can't really say like, hey, you know, Doug Collins, uh, who's been champing at the bit <laughs> to run for the Senate and is one of your most loyal defender, was one of your most loyal defenders when he was uh, in the House, he would love to, you know, run statewide against Raphael Warnock and set up a pretty competitive race. But you're right, there is this fixation on, um, you know, uh, Herschel Walker, former, I, I should also mention too, a, a former running back for the New Jersey Generals, uh, which was owned, a football team of the USFL, owned by Donald Trump back in the day. So, uh, Walker. Former, former right. uh, star of The Apprentice, uh, celebrity <laughs> apprentice, I believe, uh, at the time. So, there. So, 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 Walker shows the one thing that you do need to get Trump's endorsement, as you've said, which is loyalty. Mm -hmm. um, oh, and also Herschel Walker, former bobsled, Olympian bobsled <laughs> team member, although he did not, he was kind of. Uh, and I kicked out. He was kind of moved off the team. I think right before the the medal the medal rounds. But in, former Olympian, rollcall.com. Never another former Olympian, right? <laughs> um, you know, one other like thing I just want to mention because we we don't know that this will be a factor. We don't even know if. Uh, if there will be a Supreme Court retirement um, th that uh, that affects the races, we have not gotten any note that uh, Stephen Breyer, uh, who was on sort of a retirement watch list at the Supreme Court, is is retiring this year or next. Um, but if we are dealing with some sort of Supreme Court, uh, you know, nomination fight, confirmation fight in the Senate. Does that, wh where do you see that like affecting, do you, do you feel like it affects one party more than the other? It seems like Republicans win a lot of these confirmation fights, but it, it, is it clear that they have an electoral advantage? Uh, I'm, I'm going to start as I do with most things. Start is it not being a game changer until proven otherwise. Um, Breyer's not exactly a swing vote. Um, so there's not that uncertainty. Um, President Biden has been pretty clear about his intention to nominate a uh, the first black woman uh, to the Supreme Court. So there's kind of not a lot of 
<laughs> there's sort of a lot of knowns, uh, knowns and few unknowns. If we could go back to uh, the late Donald Rumsfeld's uh, famous statement, uh, I it's just going to ratchet up the intensity and pressure. Washington, it's hard for Congress to focus on more than one thing at a time. So if the Senate is wrapped up in a Supreme Court fight, it probably means a lot of other things are going to get pushed off to the side, even though ultimately with a president, with President Biden in the White House in a Democratic Senate and the rules changed with regard to Supreme Court justices, I'm not sure what Republicans can do besides um, scream and shout about it. And one last thing I think we should mention is that, you know, Republican states have gone, uh, Republican-controlled states have been passing uh, measures, laws that restrict access to the ballot. There's a lot of concern among Democrats that this disproportionately affects them and their constituencies and targets them, really. Uh, we're in this situation where Texas Democrats uh, in the legislature in, in Texas uh, have fled to deprive the legislature of a quorum for passing such legislation to, to Washington. Um, this, I mean, these sort of of uh, efforts to, you know, restrict access to the ballot box or, you know, close the number of days that you can vote or the number of ballot boxes or areas, do you think that this is going to be an issue going into 2022? Uh Yes, um, but I'm not sure in, in which way. I mean, I think there's going to be the rhetorical issue and the, the rhetorical part of it, which um, both sides are, you know, they're either talking about access or voter integrity, voting integrity, and that's going to be the rhetorical part. Then there's going to be the practical part. And for that, for that piece, I'm waiting to see which of these laws are initially or are actually enacted. Like, right, I mean, they're being challenged in court. So what are the actual new voting laws? And in some cases... Um, does the enthusiasm overcome um, overcome more challenges? I mean, let's just take 2020. 2020 was challenging, right? I mean, it was a COVID-19, a, a pandemic, and different laws were changed in methods. Maybe precincts were closed because of safety. Anyway, there was a lot of moving parts, and we had record turnout, right? People figured out a way to vote even amidst an uncertain environment. So um, that could happen again, meaning people find a way to vote. But if the enthusiasm or intensity is low, then maybe some of these uh, more restrictions or even just changes start to matter because people are just less, they feel less of a impetus to vote. It's less of a concern or, or government isn't as big a part of their life as it was 2020. And so it does prevent uh, people from, from turning out who otherwise would have. Well, we have a lot to digest, <laughs> and 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 it will just well, and and instead of allowing uh, all these things to digest, we're just going to keep uh, consuming. <laughs> like we're going to keep on, you know, taking uh, taking fuel in uh, for the for the midterm dynamic. I mean, I think you know we we certainly haven't seen the last of Trump's endorsements, and we're going to start seeing what the redistricting lines are going to look like, and something else always happens. So, but I think this is a good kind of marker to lay down on some of the the broader topics uh, that are going to and factors that are going to affect this election. So thank you very much for walking us through it, Nathan. No problem. 